going to read our passage of scripture and pray for us. If you would stand with me out of reverence for God's word, two simple verses, and I'll be adding a lot more in as we fly through scripture today. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. The Apostle Paul wrote this, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Pray with me. Uh, King Jesus, we gather as your people who have been bought with a price. We thank you that as we gather, we are not alone uh, because we are not our own. You've given us your Holy Spirit, and so, Holy Spirit, we simply uh, call on you to fulfill your promise. Help us see Jesus in his glory in the mundane of our everyday lives in the midst of such a discouraging, deflating season. And I know there are ups and downs in this room in the varying paths that you have us on. Um, but regardless of where we are, we confess with our mouths our great need for you. We pray for those who have COVID right now among our church community and our neighborhoods and our workplaces. Would you bring healing to them? Uh, and would you put a stop? Would you put an end to the pandemic? Um, Lord, please help us now. Help us to imagine why we are here on this earth with you for the world. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. All right, you can take your seats. So, um, my, I have two uh, older boys, 8 and 10 years old, they love to read, and so we go to the library a lot, and we always have 30 books checked out, which is the max that LA public libraries let you check out, and I was walking through, and they just make a beeline for like the diary of a wimpy kid, and big Nate section with like comics and things, and um, we have a, a two-year-old little girl as well, so I was walking through the really little kids' storybook section, and there are some books that are on display that they really want you to see, because they think that they're important, the librarians do. And I brought one, all right? I'm not going to read this whole thing to you, but this book is called, We've Got the Whole World in Our Hands. We've Got the Whole World in Our Hands. Now, you probably have coming to mind, many of you, what this is based on and an alteration of. There is an old hymn or spiritual song called he, or that says, he's got the whole world in his hands. And the refrain continually is, he's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the mountains. He's got the trees. He's got the animals. He's got you and he's got me in his hands. And I'm walking by and I see, I see we've got the whole world in our hands. And something just turned over in me. And as I read through it, at the very back, you get to the end, and they've got this laid out, how to actually sing the song with kids and what tune to play in. And there's an about, and it says, about he's got the whole world in his hands. So the original, the origin of he's got the whole world in his hands is uncertain, but this well-known spiritual has brought joy and hope to people around the world. The song was first published in a hymnal in 1927. Since that time, it has been rearranged and sung by many celebrated artists, and it lists them. The verses have been modified, but the message of unity 
has prevailed. The verses have been modified, but the message of unity has prevailed. Now, here's the thing. We, we, we are a city-positive church community. We believe in uh, the universal image of God, just like Talitha was sharing with us, that all people are made in God's image and have the capacity for good, although everything about us on our own is tainted by our self-centeredness or sin, as it is called in the Bible. What we do not want to be is the kind of Christian church that finds its sense of justification in calling out the ways the world is wrong. But we also, let me just say, I don't think that's kind of the culture that we have as a people over the last four or five years as we've been a church. That's not our MO, right? We love people, we welcome people, we go out, we build relationships with people. But on the, at the same time, we cannot be followers of Jesus who are naive about the narratives of the world. The world would tell us, we're just making modifications, but the message of unity has remained the same. But let, let's just call it what it is. He's got the whole world in his hands, looks outside of creation, and has someone to hope in and trust in. We've got the whole world in our hands. It's not a mere modification of that old message. It's a complete inversion of the message. And if we're not discerning, we're going to start to try and follow Jesus in a world that shapes us powerfully in an inverted kind of discipleship. And one of the places where this is most prevalent among us is in our vocation. It's in the what we do and what we live for that all flows back from who we are, okay? Today, what we see in Paul's writings in the scriptures in 1 Corinthians is it's not even so much what we do or who we are, but it's whose we are. And I think the most destructive message, changing the, the, the song, he's got the whole world, to we've got the whole world, is how it implies we belong to ourselves. It's all over pop culture, all around us, but I think in the last couple of years, what we've experienced and seen is the foolishness to believe we've got the whole world in our hands. Um, we have no control over the creation actually um, coming after us through COVID. Uh, we, we have narratives that try and paint as though if we just got our act together, if that other side of the political aisle got their act together, then we'd have this thing under control, and it's foolishness, right? But it's in pop culture, too. Brene Brown, self-help, one of the most best-selling authors, um, says this, true belonging is the spiritual practice of believing in and belonging to yourself so deeply that you can share your most authentic self with the world. That's Brene Brown. She's got some amazing stuff. So helpful in many ways. But she says the most fundamental way that you uh, find true belonging is realizing that you belong to yourself. Janet Jackson documentary up on the billboards on Santa Monica Boulevard says, this is my story, my truth. 
right? That phrase, my truth, says there's this self-understanding that declares and dictates what's actually true about me. Uh, we watched Cruella last week, the new, you know, uh, origin story for the 101 Dalmatians fiend. And there's a moment uh, where Emma, I always mix it up, is it Emma Stone? Okay, Emma Stone <laughs> says, she's at the fountain where she talks to her mother, her mother who died when she was very young. She goes there and she talks to her mother in London. She says, I'm not sweet Estella, original name. Try as I might, I never was. I'm Cruella, born brilliant, born bad, and a little bit mad. That is so Disney in our age. <laughs> but, but the reason she justifies abandoning who her parents said that she was is by looking within herself and deciding that her narrative is, I was just born this way, so I need to own it. I belong to myself. I dictate who I am. Now, the trouble with this is it's alluring. If you belong to yourself, you get to dictate the terms of who you are. You can change who you are. You can, you can choose what will fulfill you and how to fulfill your desires and what to live for and who you get to be with and among and even in some ways who your, who your family and your community are. You bear no obligations to other people. But here's the downside. That alluring surface places all the responsibility of your existence on you. You need to provide for yourself. You need to affirm yourself. And you need to justify your very reason and purpose for living. You need to provide your own meaning if you belong to yourself. And so, in America, one of our greatest exports is mental unhealth. Because as human beings, we cannot bear that burden. We can't. And so, today, what we get to look into the scriptures and see is the good news that you don't need to belong to yourself. And it's not a quick fix. It's not a self-help. It's a security and a foundation that you can build the life on and know you're not alone and your purpose is greater than you could possibly fathom, okay? So, we have to start from the beginning. Our search for meaning, we have to connect this. All of that cultural narrative is actually a search and a hunt for vocation. Why am I here? What am I for? Who am I? And vocation comes from the Latin word vocare. It means calling, right? So a lot of times we'll use interchangeably the notion of vocation and calling. Um, Christians believe fundamentally, and we see throughout the scriptures, that God is a speaking, self-revealing God. He speaks to us through his spirit. He speaks to us through his church. He speaks to us through the scriptures, through our consciences, and through nature to communicate with us. But that doesn't mean we listen very well. Um, I've been in ministry for a, somewhere around 15 years at three different churches, and I can tell you that the whole idea of God's calling is one of the most upside-down, inside-out, disruptive, uh, Christian lingo kind of things that we have happening in the church. Um, it's a tricky thing. 
I've had people move to LA and they tell me upon meeting them that God has called them to be a top three country music artist. Wow, that's very particular. Um, I didn't know that, that God gives you the actual placement in the charts of what you will be. I've had people tell me God has called them to marry a particular person who definitely did not want to marry them. I've had God call me, tell me, or tell me that God had called them to leave people for extremely self-centered motivations. I've had people tell me that God has called them to another church community for what is very obviously just a preference thing. I've had people tell me that God has called them to obviously foolish and self-destructive decisions. We have a thing with the word calling that is kind of just the God card that's really, it's really, I'm telling you what I'm going to do and I'm not asking you for your advice about it. Here's the scandal of that. Is that not the belief, I am my own and belong to myself and Jesus seems useful to me? It is not, I am not my own. I belong to God and I need your help. So let, let me just at the outset, like one takeaway of this is let's not be a people who come to the church community and say, God has called me to do this. Would you pray for me that you would bless it? Because guess what? The world might be giving you that. The devil might be calling you to that. It might just be the blindness of your flesh. God might be giving you guidance, but calling is a much more robust picture. You see, calling... Um, well, let's, let's jump in. Let's jump into our text. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through, 19 through 20. Um, I'm going to read this once again since it's so short for us. The Apostle Paul is writing in a section in 1 Corinthians 6. He's answering questions and addressing particular issues in the church in Corinth, which was one of the most influential churches. It was in a metropolis in Greece. And specifically, he is addressing the belief that Christians can use their bodies to do whatever they want because Jesus has saved their souls. The specific issue he's, ad he's addressing here is the habit of some Christians to go and sleep with prostitutes or commit sexual sin, believing that that distinction gives them freedom to satisfy their desires however they want. Here's Paul's logic. Do you not know that your body is a temple? of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with price. So glorify God in your body. Paul begins this, this, this short two verses with a question that tugs at the underpinnings and assumptions of the Corinthians' behavior, believing that they could do whatever they wanted with their sexuality because their body was fundamentally separate from their souls or their spirits. Um, Paul says, no, no, no. Your body is not a throwaway container for your soul. It's connected to Jesus Christ. Friends, if, if we could understand what Paul is saying here, it will completely 
profound and gives significance to our lives in a way that I don't think I don't think we get as Western Christians in the 21st century. He is he's saying nothing less that your body is connected to Jesus Christ. He doesn't say your soul is connected to Jesus. So don't go like mingling your spirit with the spirit of someone else through sexual sin. He says your body is connected. As, as believers in Jesus Christ, you and I need to realize that a metaphysical shift has happened in our existence when we choose to trust in Jesus. Um, there's this big theological umbrella called union with Christ. When you look to Jesus, you repent of sin, you trust in him, you are indwelt with the Holy Spirit, with God's very spirit. And that spirit connects you in heaven to Jesus Christ. The problem is, we think heaven is about distance and a destination. So we imagine, I imagine for the longest time, Jesus was seated somewhere up in the galaxy, like on the far fringes of it, and there's this kind of nice feeling that you get, kind of like he's, we've got the whole world in our hands, where I know like Jesus really cares about me, and I'm united to him. He cares about how it goes for me. Here's the thing. Heaven, in a first century Jewish context, was not a distant place. Heaven was a place that was behind the visible world. It was a dimension rather than a destination. And for a first century Jew, the place where those dimensions were bridged was the temple in Jerusalem. You would go there not to do your religious duty so you could feel good about your spirituality. You would go there to meet with the living God. And it was dangerous. And there were priests who had to dictate how that would go. Um, and before that, the Garden of Eden was actually, if you go back and you read the creation account, the temple in Jerusalem was not the first temple. The Garden of Eden was created to be a temple, God's actual dwelling place. And so he puts Adam and Eve there, and he says, uh, be fruitful, multiply, subdue it, fill the earth. He's made Adam and Eve his emissaries in the world, his priests and his kings, mediating his presence in the world that that garden temple would spread across the whole earth. You see, God's fundamental desire is to be fully present in his creation. And the whole Old Testament tells how after the fall, after sin and division and alienation separated us from God because we rejected our vocation, the whole Old Testament is God getting his presence back with humanity through the nation of Israel. And the whole New Testament through the incarnation of Jesus Christ is about God bringing people into his real presence here on earth. And we know at the end of time, our great hope is that heaven and earth will one day be one again. And in the here and now, if you are a Christian, if you have the Holy Spirit within you, you have a connection into heaven that is nothing less than the temple of the living God. You see that here? Paul says it as clear as possible. Don't you know? Your body is a temple. Now think about what that must mean for God to be able to dwell. That's the purpose of a temple, right? 
you are cleansed and pure. Through Jesus Christ, for you to be made a temple must necessitate the condition of cleanness. Cleanness throughout the whole Bible is about not needing separation. Uncleanness requires separation from God's people and from God. That's why lepers and others with maladies had to be outside of the city. But cleanness means there can be intimacy without judgment. And so for you to be a temple of the living God must mean God has cleansed you of sin. And so for you to not be your own means you need to, you could stop trying to cleanse yourself of the evil, of the sin, of the darkness within you, and receive that cleansing from Jesus Christ. Your body is a temple, so you are cleansed, but you are also infinitely valuable to God. You have dignity and value and worth because God sees fit to dwell in you. Like, you might live in, like, a studio apartment that's not fit for anyone to live in, even yourself right now, right? Like, and you might feel like that's who you are inside. How could God ever dwell in the studio apartment with the trundle bed that slides out from the couch and, like, the, the air fryer that is, like, my everything in my kitchen? God sees fit for you to be dwelt in by the creator of the universe. You could, you could stop trying to make yourself appealing to God. We fundamentally, when we give up, I am my own and belong to myself, receive something we could never even have thought was possible. That, that God, the one whose voice and opinion and affirmation really matters, says, you stopped running away. Let me come and make my home with you. So much so that he gave his most precious possession, his son. A sacrifice has been made so that you could be fit to be dwelt in by the spirit of the living God. And there, there, if you are a Christian, if you say, I trust Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit, right? If our bodies are temples, though, we are not our own. And so, although there is an immense gift that is given to us in being cleansed and in being valuable and having dignity, there is also responsibility. And that's where Paul starts to get to the application of saying, don't defile yourself. Don't settle. Yes, you are cleansed, but don't take that cleansing and just go out and trample it out in the world. Temples don't exist for themselves. They're places for divine communion. Julie Canlis, a theologian, said of Eden, it was a place of communion. God's transcendence, his holiness, is not about distance in the garden, but closeness. We are not our own. We've been bought with a price. Jesus has bridged heaven and earth together. And so we get to live with the kind of dignity that says, I won't stoop to the world's offerings. Now, the reason we are so tempted to do that, whether with sex, 
with, with power, with money, with affirmation from our boss or people that we really respect and revere. The reason um, we are so tempted to settle for something less than the spirit dwelling in us as the temple of the living God is because we are so keenly aware of our limits. We feel incomplete. I mean, every single one of us has insecurity that we feel like if, if I invited us one by one to come up here and just say, hey, just state your greatest insecurity. Like, like we would be utterly rejected and unacceptable to other people. And so we spend our adult lives learning how to cover up our weaknesses and project this false image of who we are, right? So what we do is we go out into the world and it has all sorts of offerings for us. It's like, satisfy your loneliness through this. Um, get power and, and, and money and whatever it might be um, and accolades through this. But maybe God knew what he was doing when he placed limits on you. Maybe he knew what he was doing when he made you incomplete. And rather than see it as an insecurity, it's the very purpose, when you see it rightly, that will drive you with insatiable hunger to feast on and in the presence of God. Julie Canlis continues, uh, to be a creature is also to be finite. We were not created to be God like him, yes, but limitations are a part of our goodness. Limitations existed before the fall, before sin entered the picture. When God created us limited as we are, he said it is very good. When he created us with bodies, think about our text today in scripture, when he created us with bodies, this introduced the possibility for hunger and thirst and sleep. Do you think Adam and Eve didn't need eight hours of sleep? Perhaps as unspoiled beings, they needed 16 hours of sleep. The limitations that are part of us being not God were intended to keep us close and in relationship with God. Our very limitations imply the need for relationship. To be a creature is to refuse to make ourselves, but instead to joyfully accept our limitations. It is to know our self-making would be our unmaking. Wisdom in the Bible is recognizing this relationship between creator and creature and joyfully submitting to it. The devil and the flesh and the world would tell you you are inadequate. If you don't make it here by the age of 65, you're a failure. Your life was not worth living. If you're not beautiful and gorgeous like this airbrushed, photoshopped model on the front of this magazine, you are unattractive and hideous. And God says, all of those limitations upon who you are are actually gifts from me so that you would feel need for me and you'd be drawn in dependence to me. We will never find our meaning out there in the world. We are not our own. We've been bought with Christ. We belong to God. And that is our great comfort. Um, because, guess what? If we belong to God, whose responsibility ultimately are we? God's! Yeah! Right? Like, your most precious possession 
personally, like whatever you value most, whether it is an article of clothing or uh, a pair of basketball shoes, it's one of mine, um, you take care of it. You don't just say, go and you know, take care of yourself, inanimate possession. Um, so too, God doesn't look at us and say, take care of yourself, non-deity creation. He is creator. It's him saying, I created you, I will fulfill and sustain you. And actually, in church history, we have a wealth of declaration about what that means for us. The Heidelberg Catechism, catechisms are these kind of formation um, uh, question and answer truths that were meant to shape our minds as young believers would be raised in the church. There would be a question, and then there would be an answer. The first question in the Heidelberg Catechism, written in 1563, is what is your only comfort in life and death? What is your only comfort in life and death? The answer that people memorized in the church was that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood, and he has set me free from all the power of the devil. He, is all, he also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he assures me of eternal life and make, and make me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. There's comfort in belonging to God. Comfort that you will never find in the anxiety of self-making and self-definition. God, first and foremost, calls you to himself. Your calling. If you're not a Christian, you need to know you are first and foremost called to God to have the security and the meaning and the purpose for your life that is to know God, to be a redeemed one of his people, to become a son or a daughter. Calling first and foremost, is declaration over you and me. We tend to think our calling is our job. We start out at what we do. God starts at who we are. He declares over us we are his creation, and in salvation, he calls us his beloved people. So, friends, any moment you feel insecure in the world, don't try and justify why you shouldn't be anxious apart from stopping at or starting at. I'm not my own. I was bought with the price. I belong to Jesus Christ. So much so that when I choose to go out and sin, this is Paul's argument elsewhere in the chapter, I'm taking Christ's body into the sin with me. Whew. We're not our own. Calling is declared over us to belong to God, but it, it moves on. Calling gives us direction from God. God doesn't want us to just say, oh, I'm God's. Okay, now I'm just going to sit for the rest of my life. I can have meaning and purpose in him. He's going to provide for me, so God, fill my cabinet with food. No, he has direction and purpose. You'll never be satisfied with your life if all you ever do is just try and receive truth from God without receiving direction from him. He has purpose and dignity and worth. In creation, God blessed the earth. God told Adam and Eve, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. 
So people, human beings, regardless of whether they're Christians or not, were created and blessed to rule over the earth, to extend God's presence and creativity via his image by cultivating the raw substance of the earth with wisdom and to create value and beauty in that cultivation and to make more babies to fill the earth with his image bearers. In redemption, though, Ephesians 2.10 tells us something particular for Christians. For we are his workmanship, created, there's our creation language, in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So God created you as a person to work, Work was not an effect of the fall. There will be work in the new creation. If you're a barista, if you're a scientist, a researcher, a doctor, a teacher, a writer, an engineer, a banker, insofar as it's not explicit sin, it's a good thing to cultivate and to use the gifts that God has given you to exert energy to be a blessing in love to the people around you. But if you're a Christian, God has given you a unique authority to be an ambassador as, as an ambassador of the kingdom of heaven on earth. Um, I wonder if we walk around with the kind of confidence that says, in Jesus Christ, God has unique, preordained, designed, specified good works for us to walk in. One of the things that we often do in these passages is replace the we's and the us's with I's and me's. So we would read Ephesians 2.10 more like, for I am his workmanship, that I should walk in them. Fundamental to your calling is not only a calling to God in intimacy and dependence, but a calling to belong to his For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he predestined before him, that we should walk in them. So God's first calling and direction is to belong to him, to walk with him, to know him, to listen to him with his people. An isolated, autonomous Christian, again, is really walking in, I am my own and belong to myself, and Jesus seems convenient for these desires I have. But if I'm not my own, then I'm a part of his bride. And so I want to invite you, walk daily in dependence upon God, but also view yourself fundamentally, inextricably, as a part of his people. Wherever God takes you, if it's here right now, be all in. If, it, if it's across the country, across the globe, back to your hometown, wherever it might be, be all in with the church, okay? And realize that there will be things you don't like, disagree with, just like in marriage, in family. There are people you don't like or disagree with or don't find all that enthusiastic about. You belong to them, right? But we're not just called to God and to his people. We're called to love our neighbor. 
We're called to be good news, salt and light in the world. Now, I think one of the ways that we go wrong in, in talking about vocation is we actually substitute the word vocation with occupation. We think that our job is our calling. And so we expect the meaning that comes from God, the meaning that comes from community, all to be infused in our occupation, what we get paid to do for between 40 and 80 hours a week. Now, we've talked about other ways that we are designed and called by God. So your workplace might not be the place where you find deep community. Well, you have a lot of other avenues to express that, that vocation, right? But we got to talk about work. Work is a good thing. Occupation is a good thing. And guess what? It is one of the chief ways that you express love of neighbor in our modern day. And so, um, know that there's dignity and purpose and value in it. Um, most of you have complete, I don't know of any situations, where you have a, an occupation that is in violation of God's will. You're not a part of something that is explicitly leading people into sin. You might be thoroughly unsatisfied with your occupation, though, whether it's the amount of stress put on you, whether it's the purposelessness that you feel, um, whether it's, it's being unsatisfied with the role that you're given or the responsibility that you're given or your pay or whatever it might be, know that for most of human history, people did not find all that much significance in their specific tasks in their job. Know that. Because one of the great problems in our cultural moment is the belief that the pasture is always greener in the next workplace. Statistically, millennials stay in jobs two years and nine months before moving on. Gen Z, limited amount of time that we've had in that, two years and three months, okay? Now, I am not saying it's sinful to change jobs, not in the slightest. I'm saying you should not make that decision in isolation. And we must begin to realize that the, the cultivation of workplaces and neighborhoods and churches and communities and families takes far more time than the instant internet age would have us believe. Think about human relationships. You meet somebody, you might love doing things with them, but you will not open up to them for a long time. And then you might share your story. Year two, you might share a problem going on in your life. Year three, you might share a need that someone else can meet in your life. Year four, you might start to ask like, hey, I noticed you're really good at this. I noticed you have a lot of confidence in this. Would you help me? And then you can actually start to speak into one another's lives. Um, most likely, a change in work will maybe solve some of your um, unrest in a job, but it'll probably introduce new ones that you won't realize for a year or two. Remember, you're not your own. Meaning and vocation and calling is spread broadly so that if one area is, feels more like suffering than blessing, we have a lot of areas of calling that are satisfying and fulfilling us. So you might feel like you have gifts that you can't use in your workplace. Guess what? Maybe Clarence Health can use you. Um, you might feel like you have uh, more time that you could utilize. Um, 
the church and serving and blessing. You might have resources. You have so many different areas that we get to live out our calling and our vocation to be satisfied people, right? All right. Three really practical encouragements in the midst of all of this. And these have been kind of woven in. And then we're going to be done. To cultivate your vocation over the long term to see deep meaning and purpose in your life, knowing that it's not going to just happen in your job. It's not going to happen out in the world. It starts on the foundation of Jesus and following his direction the first thing that I want to invite you to is surrender. When Jesus came and said, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand, it was a calling to belong not to ourselves, but to belong to God. Surrender is opening up our hands to say, God, my life is yours. I belong to you. Help me. If you're not a Christian, that would mean for the first time saying, Jesus, if you're real, help me. Prove it to me. We're a community that would love to walk with you through that process. If you're a Christian, it's an everyday exercise saying, Lord, I surrender this day to you. Let your will be done with my life. There are not hurdles and barriers to my true calling in this life. They're probably the very thing you're calling me to today. The annoyances, the disruptions in my life. Surrender is a continual process, and it's actually one of the ways we begin to hear the Holy Spirit leading us. Surrender, second one, slow down. Hurry will absolutely undermine your sense of meaning and depth in your life. We talk about this a lot. Being busy is destructive to your soul because it spreads you thin. It tells you it's never enough. There will never be something else that is not available to be done. But when we slow down, we receive those limits, we feel tension when we slow down, and then we're forced to turn to receive from God. The invitation to slow down is an invitation to commune with God in your weaknesses and limitations, right? So something like a weekly Sabbath is actually an invitation to take on limits, to bound your life and say, I'm going to take 24 hours every week to remind myself tangibly, I'm not my own. I've been bought with a price. Although I need to sleep, the Psalms say God never sleeps. Slow down, receive your limitations through. I would really encourage Sabbath, even stuff like leisure. Enjoying God's creation and the gifts that he has given us. <clears throat> Surrender, slow down, stay a while. Uh, God calls us and gives us direction, not just to himself, to walk with him, not just to a particular people, but also to places. Jesus never left like a 30-square-mile area in his entire ministry. Um, I wonder what it would look like to rather than view ourselves with unlimited connection out into the world to follow whatever opportunity might pay us the most, give us the most uh, influence, whatever it might be, to root deeply where we are. Because, again, um, our world is increasingly shallow 
we get to be as the people of God who have our meaning provided for us, who have our provision provided for us, who have everything that we need in God among his people. We get to be the stable, faithful friends that people have for a long time. So if you're a college student, don't assume that God's calling you to leave L.A. If you can get a job in another city, you could definitely get a job in L.A. What would it look like to be here for the long term? Um, if you're in your working career, consider what it would be like to choose to turn down more money to go somewhere else in order to stay here and reap the immaterial blessing of being known as a human being among a community uh, <clears throat> with deep relationships. So if, if we want meaning, if we want to experience all that God has for us, daily surrender to him, receiving from him who we are and where we ought to go, uh, slowing down and staying a while. And after months go by, after years go by, I wonder just how much attention our wow culture will suddenly be paying to a community of people that live like a loving family that don't abide by the world's hurry and anxiety and self-centeredness, but are just committed to being wholehearted, secure human beings in our city. I guarantee you your neighbors will take, take notice. Your classmates will take notice. Your coworkers will take notice. And we'll just watch as the Spirit moves. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that we are secure in you. Would you help us to look to you? Would you help us to uproot and pull out the threads that stem from the lie that we are our own and belong to ourselves? And would you help us to see how much meaning and purpose you give simply as we receive your declaration over us? We are not our own. We were bought with a price. Glorify God with our bodies. Let us live God-glorifying lives here in our city. Um, Holy Spirit, we feel so inadequate for that. Um, I, I sense and am aware of particular stories about how inadequate we feel to be able to glorify you. Holy Spirit, remind us that you used 12 ragtag uh, fishermen, tax collector, zealot, things that no one would have expected to become leaders among your people and influential members of your community. Help us, everyone, to see all you need 